Well, let me add my welcome to you this morning. I failed to do that this morning when we were baptizing, but we're glad to see you on this last Sunday of 2019. It's crazy that uh, many of us, what, 20 years ago, this was supposed to be like the end of the world, going to be happening in just a couple days, and here we are 20 years removed from that. If you remember the whole millennium thing, I was just thinking about that this morning, how crazy that was, but... Uh, Time flies, and 2019 flew by fast, and we're looking forward to what 2020 has for us as we move ahead. If you've got your Bible, take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to finish up uh, our uh, study of these seven churches mentioned in these two chapters that we've been working through for the last several weeks. And then in January, next Sunday, for three weeks, we're going to do a uh, short mini-series that we're simply calling Next Steps. And what that is, is we're going to talk through our discipleship process. What does the Bible say about what a Christian should be doing to grow and to nurture their walk with Jesus and, uh, and to become a more fully developed follower of Christ? So we're going to talk about that for the next three Sundays. And then on January 24th, I believe, we've got 29th, I should say, we've got uh, our church planner. Church planting partner is going to be with us, Josh Weatherspoon. He's going to be planting a church in Short Pump uh, this spring. And so he's working with his core team, has been for some time now, and they're going to be launching. So he's going to be with us on that Sunday to share about the, what God is leading them to do, and, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about how we're partnering with them and what that means for us on that day. And then, Lord willing, back in, uh, we'll jump back into Revelation when uh, February gets here. But that's sort of what the new year is going to look like the first uh, four or five weeks. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 22 in just a moment. But I want to speak to the subject of, obviously, Laodicea. This is the church that we're going to look at. But the whole idea that the Lord's speaking to them about is their need to warm up, to warm up in their zeal for the Lord, to warm up in their love for the Lord, to warm up in their walk with the Lord, if they even had a walk. But there's a call here to warm up. And uh, that's something that all of us understand. I mean, think about it, if you will. When it's hot outside, and it's supposed to be wintertime right now, even though the last few days have not felt much like winter, but when it's hot outside, so maybe this spring, later this summer, uh, when you're out there in the yard working hard and you're sweating and, and you're hot, I mean, what is it that you want more than, obviously, someone to come and do the work for you, but what is it that you want more than anything else? It's a cold drink of water. Yeah, it's a glass of iced tea. It's a glass of ice water. That's what you want. There's nothing when I'm out in the yard more satisfying than to take a cold drink of water and to be satisfied. Or for those of us who are uh, early risers and we like to drink coffee, what is it that we reach for first before anything else? <laughs> I guess it comes in all forms and fashions, right? But for us coffee drinkers, we want a piping hot cup of coffee, right? We want a hot cup of coffee, not a cold cup of coffee, not a tepid cup of coffee. We want it piping hot. When we eat our food, we want cold food to be cold. We want hot food to be served hot. Can you imagine this morning going out and, and ordering some gelato and it being served to you at room temperature. You all know what gelato is, right? It's a glorified version of ice cream, but it's good. But you want it cold. You want it frozen. You want it sticking together. You don't want to eat it with a straw. Or imagine this afternoon we're going down to Ruth's Chris and we're going to have a cowboy ribeye and you're paying, by the way, and, and we order that food. And that 
ribeye comes out, and it's supposed to come out on a plate that's 500 degrees. If you've ever been to Roots Chris, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it comes out, instead of being 500 degrees, it comes out room temperature. I mean, I'd still eat it, but I wouldn't enjoy it as much. It's just something wrong about eating cold food at room temperature. Something wrong about eating hot food at room temperature. Something wrong about drinking cold drinks or hot drinks at room temperature. They're not supposed to be that way. That's the reason. They're supposed to be one or the other. They're not supposed to be lukewarm. They're not supposed to be tepid. Well, taking that image and inferring it onto what Jesus is going to say to this church, Jesus is going to tell them, he's going to tell us the same thing about a believer's and a church's faith and practice. Jesus is going to tell this church that they need to be one or the other. They either need to be cold to Christ, cold toward the faith, or they need to be hot toward Christ and hot toward the faith. There's nothing more nauseating than a teammate whose heart is not in the game. I mean, last night, if you're a college football, football connoisseur, you were loving last night with the playoff games. But imagine yourself, a college football player, you're in the playoffs, and one of your teammates, even though you have an opportunity to play for the national championship, one of your teammates is just kind of half-heartedly going through the motions. Their heart's not in the practice, their heart's not in the preparation, therefore their heart's not in the game. Nothing more nauseating than that. Take it a step further. There's nothing more dangerous than a team member whose head is somewhere other than the mission. Jesus here sternly rebukes those who possess a room temperature kind of faith. You see, Jesus detests complacent Christianity. He's going to tell us that you've got to pick a lane. You can't straddle between two concepts. You can't walk an indifferent line. You have to choose a side. And so the Laodiceans, as we're going to see, needed to warm up in their understanding and love for the Lord. The Lord's message here to this church is a timely one for us. You see, like Laodicea, we are a culture that is affluent. We, our cultures are very similar to that of what we see in this church's culture. It's also timely in the fact that this is the last Sunday of 2019. And what happens at this time of year? This is the time of the year where we begin to, to think back over what this year's meant for us, the things we've accomplished, the goals that we had set for ourselves, and, and perhaps our inability to achieve those goals. And we begin to reassess our lives. We begin to make resolutions about the upcoming year. I think that's good that we look back and, and think through and, and assess how we have done and assess our growth. I think it's good that we make resolutions to do better in the new year, but we need to be resolved to carry those through. And so this morning as we walk through this text and look at the message to this church, I want us to hear it not just as something that's spoken to them, but we need to hear it as something that is spoken to each and every one of us individually as well as a church. I mean, after all, each one of these messages ends with, He who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. So, Revelation chapter 3, let's begin reading in verse 14. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Again, as he's done in every one of these letters, Jesus is is sort of authenticating who he is and his authority to speak to this church. Verse 15, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A little background about who these people are in this city called Laodicea and what this city meant to the region. Laodicea, as with these other cities, was pivotal to the overall culture and economy of what was taking place. This city sat on a major postal route or road that ran from Pergamum through Thyatira into Sardis, down to Philadelphia, and ultimately to the Mediterranean Sea. It was 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia, and it was 100 miles east of Ephesus on the main Roman road that led out to eastern Asia Minor. And, and so the reason I point out these roads is because it helps us understand the economy and the status of what this city held and who it was. The convergence of these trade routes made this city critical for trade. It made it critical for communications within the province. In fact, due to its locality and its prominence, it was the more important city of a tri-city elite alliance between Hierapolis, six miles to the north, and Colossae, 10 miles to the east, east, all three of these cities being part of Phrygia. Laodicea was founded by the Seleucid king Antiochus II. So it's an old city. It was founded sometime between 253 B.C. Then when Rome came in and conquered this region, the city immediately became a very loyal and a very supportive ally to Caesar. And so because of their loyalty, because of their the fact that they were willing to be an ally, Caesar and Rome gave them certain privileges. This became a judicial center. This became a, a communications center. This became an administrative center as well. And then it took on banking as a commodity. And so the residents of Laodicea became wealthy. The city was also known for its production of soft raven black wool, something you couldn't get in any other place in the region. And so that added to the wealth of the residents. And then it also had a very famous school of medicine where those there in the school of medicine came up with this compound to cure eye diseases. And so people would travel from all around the region to buy this compound so that they could treat the diseases that so many of them had in their eyes. The location of the city was a little bit problematic. I'm going to share this because I think it, it applies to the overall mentality of the people within the city. So here was a city that was prone, like some of these other towns that we've talked about, in areas that were prone to earthquakes. And in 60 AD, history tells us that there was a major earthquake that leveled the city of Laodicea. And when this has happened in other cities, like I think we looked at a few weeks ago, maybe Sardis in AD 17 had a major earthquake and Rome came in to their aid and gave them finances to be able to rebuild. Well, Laodicea was so wealthy, the people there were so affluent that they did not need, in fact, they did not want help from Rome. They rebuilt themselves. 
It was also a city that had no uh, water source in and of itself within the walls, and so they had to pipe it in via aqueducts from six miles to the south. And so they weren't as self-sufficient as they thought they were. The religious practice of the people there in, in Laodicea was syncretistic, like many of these other cities. There was a combination of local gods and Roman gods. Judaism was also prominent, as we've seen in other cities. But here what we don't see is that in this prominent uh, collection or prominent uh, group of Jews, there was no in, antagonistic threat toward believers. They just sort of let them go. And the reason I believe this is so is because the Jews, who many of them were settled there by Antiochus II, 2,000 families, Jewish families, were settled there in the region when the city was set up. And many of these became wealthy. Many of these Jews took on Greek names. And so what we see in history is this syncretism of the Jewish people into the culture of these pagan peoples. And so these Jews were basically Jews in name only, like many Jews are today here in America. It's not to say all of them are that way, but many of them are just Jews in name only. And so this church began to take on the culture of the culture of the community. Um, Jesus says nothing complimentary about this church. Only two churches that he doesn't say something good about, and that is Sardis and Laodicea. Sardis, he declared as a church that was dead. But if you remember when we studied that a few weeks ago, Jesus doesn't say that everyone was dead. He says the church by and large is dead, but there's a remnant of faithful who have not soiled their garments, he said. But here in the church of Laodicea, Jesus doesn't even say that. He it gives us the impression that everyone in the church was lukewarm, complacent, and tepid in their faith. And so this morning, let's take a quick look at the message the Lord gives us here, I'm going to share with you four things, and I want to, this to lead into our time of observing the Lord's Supper. Because again, here's a church that is so similar to the culture in which we live, affluent, self-sufficient, uh, acquainted with the Bible, uh, around spiritual things. And so many times, I believe what American Christianity looks like is the lukewarmness that we see here in the people of Laodicea. And so this is a good opportunity at the end of the year as we're observing the Lord's Supper for us to do some soul searching, to, to actually do what, the, the, what, what these verses say at the end of these letters. He who has an ear, let him hear. So this morning, we want to hear from the Holy Spirit. We want to assess our lives, and we want to position ourselves to be in a proper place to observe the Lord's Supper this morning together. So first thing I want you to see here is the problem. What's the problem in this church? I think I've already said it. It's lukewarm faith. Verse 15, he tells us here that this church had a lukewarm faith. He says, I wish that you were either cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich, I prospered and I need nothing, but not realizing you're really wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I say naked, funny. I just know everyone out there is, is chuckling underneath your breath, but that's the Arkansas accent coming out. So thank you. Jesus, notice what he says in verse 15. I know your works. We've seen this statement before, have we not? We've seen it seven times now. 
Jesus says the same thing to each one of these church. I know your works. In other words, I completely know everything about your life. I completely know everything about your, your faith. I completely know everything about your mentality, your love for me, your love for people. I know when you're faking it. I know when you're not faking it. I know when you're authentic. But right now, he's saying to this church, I know that you just go through the motions. I know that you're not hot. I know that you're not cold. I know that you're, in fact, nothing more than a lukewarm, complacent, apathetic, nominal follower of Jesus. And because he knows, he has the authority to speak to this situation. And because Jesus knows, he has the authority to speak to our situation. Jesus knows. These Laodiceans, as Jesus understood, were immensely wealthy. And so this fostered a mentality of self-sufficiency that Jesus was full aware of. This is a deadly combination for Christians. For us to begin to think, I don't need anything. I told you earlier, the reason I wanted you to know a little bit about where the city was located was because of this right here. They thought that they were self-sufficient. Earthquakes leveled the city. No, no, Rome, we don't need help. We can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And they could financially. But there's some things in our lives that we can never do on our own. When it comes to the spiritual side of our life, we need Jesus. I would say we need Jesus in everything. This is a daily combination when it comes. Wealth and the idea of self-sufficiency. And so their prosperity and the ease it created in this laissez-faire culture resulted in a dispassionate people. Where are we today in America and the church? We are a dispassionate people. Where is the passion for the Lord? Where is our zeal for the Lord? Where is our care for the Lord? We look at people who actually love the Lord and care for the Lord and are passionate about the gospel, passionate about the faith. We look at them and say, they're kind of a little bit too fundamental for us. They're a little bit too crazy for us. Why don't you calm it down just a tad? That's the way we think of people who are passionate about the Lord. Instead, we're satisfied with indifference. We're satisfied with nominal. We're satisfied with complacency. This church and the tepidness of their face caused Jesus, look what it says here in, in verse 15, caused, 16, caused Jesus to want to spit them out of his mouth. The Greek term there is actually the idea of vomiting. It's not that he's just spitting. He wants to throw them up. I can't think of anything in life more horrifying than vomiting. Can I get an amen for that? I mean, there's a lot that I will gladly endure if I just don't have to vomit. Jesus says here, man, your, your tepidness is so nauseating to me that I would, I would take joy in vomiting you out. They were disgusting to him. This morning I was drinking several cups of coffee and I let one of them get a little cool, and I don't like lukewarm coffee, and so sometimes when I take a swig out of it, it's, it's kind of not necessarily nauseating like I'm going to throw up, but it's just, ugh, it's just nasty. Like, I would rather, uh, I would rather um, drink almost anything than a cold cup of coffee, and so you just want to spit it out. That's the reaction I always have. That's the, the, the idea here is when Jesus looks at their tepidness, he just wants to spit them out. Why? Because there was no loyalty in these Laodicean believers. At times they might identify as followers of Christ, but their lifestyle really never affirmed a, a true following of Jesus. They occasionally would gather with the church for worship, but their hearts are not in it. I mean, think how, how many times we today will gather with a church, but our heart's not in it. How many times this year, 2019, did you come to church simply to go home? 
You came with no sense of expectation. You came with no, no desire to really hear from God, no uh, really feeling that God would speak or would do in your life, that you would be encouraged, that we, you would be blessed. How many times do we come to church and our focus is on us and it's not on other people as well? There's nothing there but lukewarmness. There's nothing there that, but tepidness. We just kind of go through the motions, and that's what this church was doing. They didn't talk about their faith with, in Jesus with others. They never shared the gospel with people. But they also never openly denied Jesus. You see, Jesus was, was saying to them, I wish that you were one or the other. I want you to be full on for me, or I want you to be a hater of me and an antagonistic toward me. I want you to take up a sword and war against me. Don't walk down the middle. Be passionate or be a hater. Be passionate about one side or the other. This church drove right down the middle of the spiritual road, like so many times we do in American Christianity. There are so many so-called Christians in the church today who resemble these type of believers. They're complacent. They're lukewarm. They're not necessarily uh, warring against Jesus. They're not warring against the church. They're not at war with the gospel, but instead they're just simply indifferent toward all of it. They don't care about anything except their own personal comfort and ease. That's the church. If it feels good, I may be a part of it. If it fits in my schedule, I may uh, accommodate it. How many times has that happened in our lives where we come to church if there's nothing better to do? I, I realize I'm preaching to the choir for the most part, a lot of most of you are here every single Sunday. Obviously, your your uh, your, your uh, eternal security is not contingent upon whether or not you're here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But I believe there's something to be said about a person who says they're a follower of Jesus Christ with no desire whatsoever to be in fellowship with God's people. I think it speaks to something far worse about a person's life that we need to be aware of. So these people. Really, the only time they ever thought about God was when their prosperity and comfort were threatened. You've been there before, right? When something in your life began to fall through, when something in your life began to be shaken, when something that you thought was secure began to be a little bit uh, threatened, you immediately come running back to God. But what happens quickly after that? When things begin to get settled, when things begin to get under control again, what happens? We begin to go back to our old lifestyle. I mentioned the millennium, the millennium a few minutes ago and how that was such a, a crazy time where we're kind of looking at the world thinking everything's going to fall apart because all our technology is going to just kind of freak out on us when the clock hits midnight on 2000. But if you remember in 2001 when the trade towers were bombed, when the planes were hijacked, what happened in America? People began to run back to the church. But what happened then three months later when things began to settle down? You couldn't find them. That's what happens when you've got a lukewarm faith. This faith is grounded in self-sufficiency. Like the Laodiceans, today's complacent Christians think he or she is rich. We think that we're prosperous. We think that we need of nothing like Jesus says in verse 17. But Jesus has a different perspective. Look what he says. He says that's not the case at all. In fact, you're wretched. You're pitiable. You're poor, you're blind and naked. He or she in reality is not even a Christian if I read my text correctly. You're, you're nominal. You say you're a Christian. You go through religious motions. But in fact, you're blind. You don't have spiritual sight. You're blind. You're not rich in Christ. You're poor. You're not blessed and, and, and walking in the grace of Christ. No, you're wretched. You're a wretched sinner before the Lord. 
You're not covered in the righteousness of Christ. You're naked and you bear your own shame, he says. He said there might be a name on a church membership roll there, but there's no evidence of a change of heart in this church. There might have been a profession of faith. There might have been a baptism, but there's been no transformation. No change, no Christ. And so we would be wise to examine ourselves even today to see that we are in the faith. I, I'm reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, that we are to test ourselves. We're to examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith. Every one of us, especially in, in moments like this, mornings like this, when we observe the Lord's Supper, this is an opportunity for us to reflect and take assessment of our lives. And there's nothing wrong with just simply asking that question. Am I a follower of Jesus Christ? Is there a track record in my life that would bear evidence and proof then I'm a follower of Jesus. Not that I've prayed a prayer, not that I've been baptized, not that I've been a member of a church, not that I teach Sunday school or any of those things. Am I faithing into Jesus? And if so, there's going to be evidence. There's a second thing that I want you to see. Man, y'all got to hurry up. Or I just got to hush. Let's look at the solution, verse 18. The problem is lukewarm faith. The solution is I counsel you to buy from me gold, Refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus here is drawing on the economic commodities of Laodicea as he instructs these lukewarm so-called believers to invest in his commodities. He's saying you've made wealth and, and you've made a great life from these things and you're drawing from these things, drawing from your affluence, drawing from your wealth, this idea and this false concept that you're fine in the eyes of the Lord, but that's in fact not true at all. And so I want you to invest in me. I want you to, to take stock in me. Jesus here is not suggesting that we buy our salvation. Absolutely, that's not what he's saying. I mean, Scripture is very clear that Salvation is by faith in grace, by grace through faith alone. Got a little tongue-tied. So he's not selling, telling us to buy our salvation. He's simply here using a metaphor of finding our security in the riches of Christ, our covering in his holy garments, and healing in the salve that only he can provide. The Laodiceans' problem was not wealth. It was the smug satisfaction it engendered. See, they perceived that their material wealth connoted or somehow brought spiritual wealth. They had no need for help from anyone, including God. And so Jesus' rebuke here was meant to awaken them to the reality that they were in fact poor, that they were in fact blind, and that they were in fact naked. The solution for them, the solution for us, is to find healing in Jesus. Think about it this way. He is the one who offers the cold glass of water, refreshing satisfying, meets the deep longings of each and every person's heart. If you remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus is sitting there at the well and he's talking to that Samaritan woman who's drawing water and he tells her in verse 14, if you would drink from this well, it would flow, it would spring up into overflowing life for you. It would satisfy you like nothing ever could. That's the solution, Christ's riches. Third thing, I want you to see the qualifier Verses 19 and 20 talks about his love. The reason he's speaking to this church, the reason he's engaging this church that really has nothing and wants nothing to do with the Lord, the reason he's engaging them is because he loves them. 
It would seem strange to us if you think about it. If you step back and just take the story for what it is. Here's a people that really want nothing to do with God. They just want the forms and the formalities of worship. But they really want nothing to do with what the worship is supposed to be geared toward. And yet Jesus speaks a message, yes, of judgment, but it's a message of love. Why? Because he tells us he disciplines those he loves. Verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. I love you, so listen. I love you, so have ears to hear. I love you, so take heed of what I'm saying because it brings life to your soul. Solution is further developed as we go into verse 20. Jesus here stands at the door of each person's heart and he summons them to leave their lifeless, complacent spiritual life and find healing and spiritual sight in him. He promises to the one who opens the door that he will come in, he will dine, he will fellowship, he will bring the blessings and the promises of life eternal with God the Father. And this all flows from his love. This morning, if the Holy Spirit is impressing upon your heart, here's some things that are not right. Here's some things that are not what need to be. Here's, a, here's in fact, that where you're at spiritually. You're not even a follower of Jesus. You, you simply go through motions, but in reality, you're lost and on your way to hell. If you begin to sense that in your life, it's not because God hates you. It's because God loves you. And as a follower of Jesus who's walking into guilty distance, if you begin to feel and to sense the Holy Spirit began to press upon your life saying, this is not right. This is sin. This is things that, are, that don't need to be in your life. It's not because God hates you. It's because God loves you. doesn't feel like that, but that is, in fact, what it is. He loves you, so he speaks the truth to you. It's a loving invitation, and this invitation necessitates a response. So let me share with you a fourth thing, and that is what your response should be. When we hear the voice, we hear the knock of Jesus, we begin to open the door to him. What does all that require? Three things I want you to see this morning. First of all, you've got to realize your condition. What is your condition? To this church, he says you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. And so for us this morning, for you this morning, let's just put it in your circle. Draw a circle around yourself today. Where am I spiritually? What is my condition? Am I in Christ? Am I in relationship with Christ? Can I go back to a moment where I know with, without a shadow of doubt there was a moment in my life where I said yes to Christ. I confessed sin. I repented of that sin. I placed full and complete trust in Jesus. Does that mean there's not been sin in your life since? Absolutely, that's not what that means. We will all mess up. We will all make mistakes. But there was that dividing moment in your life where you said yes to Jesus. And if so, how has God been working and how have you been growing in your life? What is your condition? Maybe you're a Christian who's walking at that guilty distance. Maybe this morning you've never put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So what is your condition? We have to do this in every realm of life when we want to grow. I was joking the other day at the Y with one of the trainers there because this is the time of the year that, well, next week will be the time of the year well, when the masses flock to the gym. We've got a New Year's resolution. I'm not making fun of it. I hope all of you make those type of resolutions, and I want you to stick with it. But I poke fun at it a little bit because most people will get in there, and three days they're going to be all gung-ho. We're going to get this done. And then they begin to hit the soreness, and then they're out, right? I mean, we've all been there. I've been there. 
Uh, so I was joking with one of the guys the other day. I was like, man, it's awful quiet in here. Because it was like me and two other people. And he's like, yeah, I, I don't know where everybody's at. And I said, well, I guess it's kind of like the calm before the storm because we know what's coming next week. And, and so when you think about your life physically, when you think about your life spiritually, when you think of your life in whatever context, uh, financially, you've got to know what your condition is. Secondly, well, how do you respond? He says here that we must zealously repent. Zeal, what is that? It's not a word we always use, but I like it. I think I'm going to use it more often. It's kind of like bigly, you know. This is one of those words you hear and you're like, I think it's kind of weird, but I may like it. Zeal, what is it? It's eagerness for something. What are you zealous for in your life? What are you zealous for? Some of you guys, you're zealous about fishing. Some of you guys, you're zealous about sports. You're zealous about whatever your hobby is. You're zealous about your family. You're zealous about your job. You ladies, you got your own areas that you're zealous, you're eager about. Jesus says, be zealous for repentance. What is repentance? Simple biblical definition of repentance is, is a change of direction. I'm headed in this direction, which leads me, according to the Bible, in my sin. It's leading me to hell. It's leading me to further separation from God. It's leading me to the condemnation that, that is just, that comes against my sin. And because of the gospel, I begin to understand, hey, the path that I'm on leads to destruction, but the path that's over there leads to life. And so I'm going to change direction, and in grace and through faith, I'm going to begin to pursue Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Zealously change direction in your life. Repent of what is wrong and what's improper and what's sinful and begin to do the right thing. Zeal here for the Laodiceans has to be replaced, has to replace lukewarm spirituality. And today, some of us may need to replace our complacency with zeal. Third thing I want you to see, and that is replace the old with the new. Jesus here in verse 20 promises to dine with those who will open the door. And in the, in the ancient world, in, and in some cultures even today, to share a meal with a person is, in fact, to share a life. You're not just uh, like Americans. Uh, let me say it this way. A few years ago, my first time to go to Spain, so we're meeting one night. We had dinner. It was a couple of us pastors, and we go out with this other pastor from Terrassa, which is kind of northern Barcelona, and uh, we sat down at a meal, and this was kind of one of my first formal meals with, with Spaniards. And so we're sitting there, and the meal took forever. You know, we're in America. We like to eat fast. We like to do things fast, get in, get out. We talk a little bit, but we're on our way. We're on to the next thing. And so we're sitting there, and this meal is dragging on, and, and so we eat the food, and then we wait for dessert, and, and we're just talking and, and drinking coffee and doing, doing things, living life together. And the pastor looks over at me and he says, this is how we do it in Spain. In America, you eat, you talk, and you go. Here, we just talk. Here, we hang out. Here, we enjoy one another's company. That was the idea of a meal. And Jesus is saying to this church, if you will open to, the, to me the door that I'm knocking on, I will come into you and we will share life together. There will be fellowship between God and you. And when he does so, he comes in as king. He knocks on the door. He doesn't bust the door down. He simply knocks. He asks to be invited in. But once he comes in, we must understand that he comes in as king. 
And so that everything that once sat on the throne of your heart, everything that once sat on the throne of your life has to be taken down. It has to be thrown out, out with the old and in with the new. This is truly a spiritual, mental, and emotional change that transpires in the person's life. Jesus tells this church, you got to warm up. I wish that you were hot. I wish that you were cold, but you're neither of those. You're lukewarm. This morning, as you hear the message to this church and you think about your own personal life, what's the temperature of your Christianity? What's the thermostat set on? Are you hot, zealous, passionate, in love with the Lord? Are you cold, a hater of God? In fact, you're miserable that you're here this morning. Jesus would say, I would hope that you were one of those. But this morning, I got a sneaking, sneaky suspicion that there are some who are lukewarm. And you're here, and we're grateful you're here. God's grateful you're here. It's his love and grace that you're here. But God wants you to warm up. He wants you to understand where you're at. We need to see today that in our culture, it's easy to be a Christian. In fact, sometimes it's even beneficial to identify as one who knows Christ and identify with others in the church. But this sort of syncretism fosters this complacent, lukewarm, self-sufficient Christianity that Jesus is rebuking here. We must not be satisfied with that. We must be zealous and repent and chase after Christ. This morning, there's good news. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, there's good news. You know this. God loves you. It's in this text. God loves you. He created you. He created you for himself. He's passionate about you. He's so passionate about you that he will speak harsh and, and, and seemingly unkind words to you to, to jockey you or, or to unsettle you in your sufficiency. He loves you. That's the good news the Bible tells us. The bad news is that all of us are, are corrupt. All of us are broken. All of us are, are, are far from God. All of us are rebellious towards the Lord. All of us need his grace, need his forgiveness, need his salvation. The young ladies who were baptized earlier, they were baptized because God loves them. They were baptized because he spoke to them the gospel message, and they responded in faith and in repentance. The bad news is that sin has broken God's design. The good news is that God loves us. The best news is he loves us so much that he paid the price so that you could be forgiven of all sin. How does that happen? It happens when a person understands that if I will confess my sins before the Lord, if I will believe in Jesus and what he's done for me on the cross, I can be forgiven of all sin and become a child of God. This morning, that's the main message for you. If you're a lost and in need of Christ, that's the message for you. If you're a Christian today and your temperature is not where it needs to be, good news is the Lord still loves you. The good news is there's always forgiveness. The good news is that you can, you can change. Again, there's a new year starting in just a couple days, and we will make resolutions. And I want to encourage you this morning to be resolved to live more passionately for the Lord as we go forward. Where are you at this morning? What's God speaking in to your life? As we move into a time of response, I, I want to remind you, and we're going to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we partake of the elements in just a moment. But there Paul tells us that we shouldn't take the Lord's Supper in a very haphazard or flippant or careless way. But we should take it in a worthy manner, which means uh, that, first of all, I've got to be a follower of Jesus. And this morning, 
if you're not a follower of Jesus, let's sell that today. Secondly, if you are a follower of Jesus and you're not where you need to be spiritually, there's sin that you've never confessed, never dealt with. Maybe it's sin committed yesterday. Maybe it's sin committed 10 years ago. But it's something the Lord is bringing back to your mind and to your heart. And you need to deal with it today. I would encourage you in this time of response to lay that before the Lord and ask Him to forgive you of all sin. That way you can partake of the Lord's Supper. And so in this time of response, let's be open to the Spirit's movement in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for your grace. God, every one of us, were, if we were to go around the room, we would, just, we would have to confess we are not where we wish we were. Because if we were, we would be perfect. But we know that's not the case. But Lord, you love us where we are. We know that. And God, I'm thankful that you don't satisfy to leave us there. Unfortunately, these Laodiceans were satisfied to just kind of set where they were spiritually. Satisfied to go through motions, satisfied with complacent Christianity. And today, if the truth were to be told, there's probably some in this room. I'll confess in my life, there are moments when it's okay. I just feel like it's okay to just go through motions. Lord, that's never the case. So, Father, I pray that in the next few moments, as we have this time of response, as we sing, that our hearts would be open tender to the Holy Spirit's voice. God, I pray that we would be bold. I pray that we would be courageous. I pray that we would be vulnerable this morning to say yes to anything and everything the Spirit says to us. God, for some, that may mean that they need to go to another person in this room and say, can you pray with me? I, I need somebody to pray with me today. Just kind of talk through that situation. Maybe some needs to go to a brother or sister in this room and say, I've wronged you. I need to make things right. Press that upon my heart. I need to make things right today. God, maybe families need to come and just pray together. Maybe they need to turn in their seats and pray together. Perhaps there's others. That today needs to be the day of their salvation. Holy Spirit, help us this morning. Hearts.